I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. And I am so excited to have Brandy Blocker Anderson here with me today. She's a lawyer, a teacher, an activist, an entrepreneur. She's the CEO and founder of the Anti-Racism Academy. Um, and I'm a, I'm a bit of a fangirl. She is part of my anti-racism, uh, conscious anti-racism Facebook group, and she posts the best content in there ever. And so I'm just so grateful that you're joining me today, Brandy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. As Lectural said, my name is Brady Blocker Anderson, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Anti-Racism Academy, which is an e-learning startup that helps parents and teachers learn and teach their children about issues of race and racism. Um, I am so excited to be starting this new chapter of my life. So again, like Jill said, I, I come from a legal background. So for the last few years, I've been practicing uh, corporate transactional law and before that, I was a teacher. And so I think all of my experiences, both in, in getting a, a master's in education and studying political science and obviously uh, going to law school, I think all roads have always led back to my core principles, which is the idea that you know, all of the privilege that I've been um, afforded in my life through my education, through my life experiences, um, is really all towards helping the most oppressed among us. So uh, just take a step back. I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, I come from a extremely economically um, disadvantaged background. So both my parents were addicts. Uh, my father passed when I was very young. Uh, my family experienced a lot of poverty uh, growing up. I changed schools a ton of times. So I went to six different public schools before the sixth grade. Um, and so having that background of a lot of sort of hardship um, has, has been sort of paired with also having had a lot of really amazing, wonderful experience. So uh, in the sixth grade, I was able to go to a scholarship-based boarding school, which put me on the path to being able to go to Yale and Penn and Columbia, which is sort of a world apart, right, from um, the world that I, that, I came, that I come from. But always carried that around with me of, you know, one, trying to figure out, you know, why? Why did the world I grow up in look the way it did? I know that, you know, my mom and, and my dad, they weren't bad people. Um, and looking around at the people in my neighborhood, they weren't, um, I don't think there was anything pathological innately about them. And so I always wonder, you know, why, why is the, my world different than what I saw on TGIF, for example, and all of these mm -hmm. images of whiteness and, and wealth and poverty and, you know, me growing up as an African-American person in a predominantly Black, or I won't say predominantly Black, but a, a largely Black city. I grew up also in a predominantly Latino neighborhood, um, but I also went to school with uh, white children, so I got to see a, a bit of diversity, but there was always a stark difference between um, my existence in the world I saw on television. And so of course, you know, a lot of these issues weren't talked about when I was a kid. So I came to the conclusion that outside of the poor white folks from my neighborhood, pretty much all white people were rich and all uh, poor people were black. And 
Um, my only reference point for other groups of people were perhaps, you know, visiting stores or I just had a very, very insular experience. Um, so fast forward to high school, I got to um, start traveling um, outside of the country for the first time. And so this is me, a girl coming from North Philly. And then the school I ended up going to, Cremental High School, was a boarding school. So I lived on campus five days a week. And so, again, um, not a lot of experience. So I go from a predominantly Black environment to going to England, Cambridge, England, for the first time, which was just a, a mind-boggling experience, not only because the country is pretty, uh, obviously it's not monolithic, but it's pretty monochromatic um, in comparison to where I was from. Mm -hmm. In the program I was in, I was one of two Black students out of, like, 400. So it was the very first time I had the experience of feeling like a minority and, yeah. and starting to understand the importance of race in my life outside of just wondering why the, why the sort of structural issues were there. But um, I, I guess my, my true awakening, though, to these issues came in college. When I got to college, once I started reading about the histories, um, so my focus in political science was, was on urban studies. And so, which meant I took a lot of African-American studies classes, sociology classes, and I remember being so angry. Um, I went back home after my first semester of college, and I remember talking to one of my history teachers, like, why did you lie to me? Like, why did you lie to us? Um, like, you said that uh, Black people benefit, benefited from the New Deal, but I learned in my you know, urban studies class that that's not true. Like, African-Americans were largely locked out of those programs because... Uh, domestic workers and agricultural workers weren't afforded those opportunities, which was pre predominantly what Black people did for a living during um, that time, and just other things like that. And I remember just being, just feeling just so, just like angry, just really, really angry, and not knowing what to, what to do with that energy. And so I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer for a long time. Um, at first, just for the sort of intellectual um, aspect of it but once I got uh, a little older in high school I realized there was a lot of good work um, that people could do in, in helping people in particular I thought I was going to go into public interest work um, I interned at a at a, a pro bono legal services organization in high school uh, which was awesome because coming full circle 10 years later I was able to do a lot of pro bono work on behalf of that organization as a lawyer um, but I knew I wasn't ready, quite ready to go to law school yet, and so I ended up doing Teach for America. Um, I came back to Philadelphia, and please feel free to like edit out any of this. I don't actually, I usually don't edit my episodes at all unless like someone vomits or something like that, and everything you're saying is good, so please continue. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by your background and, and how you got to be doing the work you're doing. Awesome, awesome. So I ended up um, doing Teach for America, and for me, I know that, you know, that that organization for some in, in some circles has sort of a dirty name and I definitely understand the criticisms um I think they, they they recruit heavily from schools like Yale and you know I definitely have some critiques that I can reserve for another conversation but um that that opportunity allowed me to come back to Philadelphia and to work in schools with kids who were just like me um so I ended up working at an African-centered school called Sankofa Freedom Academy Charter School, which was a really amazing experience um, of, all, of all places for me to end up, um, for me to be able to come back to Philly and teach at a school that was very much aligned with my sort of newfound radicalization as far as under, understanding the importance of 
anti-racist work and also recognizing how just like fundamentally racist our education system is in the way that it educates um, all children, but in particular, the harm it causes to children of color. So to be able to go into a school environment where like that was already understood and that we were all expected to actively work against um, the Eurocentric histories that whitewash the legacies and contributions of people of color, we were always challenged to think about no matter what we were teaching, whether it was from the traditional sort of Western canon or, you know, more, um, or books uh, and texts from, uh, from writers of color, we were always challenged to think uh, like how one how how is this how is this text or how is this assignment like helping these students towards their liberation and and, and beyond that sort of how are these texts you know not only helping to liberate them but liberate them as African people and so uh, of course school wasn't it was the school I'll say is predominantly black it's not a hundred percent but even still, there's a there's an emphasis that you know of, of Africa being the mother continent and being the foundation of life and just so many positive aspects that you know really children of all races can like um, feel a sense of of pride and knowing that they're a part of a legacy of something larger than themselves. Um, so that was a really incredible experience. Obviously, teaching is like one of the hardest things ever. Um, I was a English and social studies teacher. So I did that for two years while I was getting my master's. Um, but ultimately, I recognized that I could be the best teacher and bring my myself 100% every day, which I did. And, um, and I love my kids. My kids love me. But the structural issues impacting their lives and their outcomes are just so great that I realized that while, you know, being, quote unquote, in the trenches is important and we need people there, I wanted to dedicate my life to sort of affecting a change in a more macro level way. So, I mean, in a couple of examples that remind me of this fact. So I had one student who uh, he used to put his head down a lot in class. And so that was a no-no in my class, especially with like the Teach for America thing. And I had, you know, 10 people come in to watch me and not just, you know, obviously the kids shouldn't go, shouldn't sleep during a lesson. They can't learn that way. But there's also immense amount of pressure on me. I'm being like, recorded and you know assessed and, and judged and there was all this teacher effectiveness talk but anywho I ended up um calling his mom because it happened you know a number of times in class and she's like oh yeah he just hasn't had his insulin in the last couple of months and it was just such a an eye-opening moment and, and those moments will come up all the time where like I'm just so focused on like I need to be effective I need you to get this lesson but like he hasn't had his insulin in two weeks. Yeah, I just feel like I got kicked in the gut hearing you say that. That's. It's just like, um, you know, um, or I had another student who she was like acting out in class and I, and I was getting frustrated with her and I, I called her mom to find out, you know, what was going on with her. She's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, my brother just was murdered last night in front of her. Like she, he was killed at our house and, you know, she's in school the next day. And so I'm like, you know, like kicking myself for being like, you know, frustrated with her. Cause I'm like, I, like yeah. this is just so unfair. Um, and so I think for me that really strengthened my resolve to um, continue on my, on my, uh, my journey to going to law school. And in my mind, um, the goal was to one, uh, get, gather as much information as far as the, the sort of 
I call it evil sorceries, um, you know, just sort of in a tongue in cheek way, but there is a whole language of power um, in the form of the law in the form of policies and even be, being able to engage in those conversations be at the table, whether it's like in a, in a courtroom setting, which I think is a lot of what people think about when it comes to law. But what I realize is that the law touches so many aspects of our lives. Um, and most people only, you know, they only see litigators on television. So that's all they think of. But I wanted to become a transactional attorney because I wanted to be able to um, affect change on a interpersonal level, but also using those same tools to build towards a sort of more macro level changes. So um, my goal sort of shifted to opening a community development corporation. Um, and so that's still a long-term goal of mine. Um, coming from a very economically depressed neighborhood, I recognize the importance of both education, but also home ownership and like being able to build wealth within communities. And so I went into real estate law um, because in my mind, like, all right, like that is the one thing that black people traditionally have not had access to. And that is how white people traditionally or historically in this country have been able to build intergenerational wealth. And so I went into the corporate space recognizing that um, I would be uh, learning a lot uh, about how the sort of powers that be do business. Uh, so that's, I guess, what I mean when I, when I say like evil sorceries. Um, but learning the skills that I could take with me, if, even if I decided to leave that space and do something else. Um, and so I had a, a positive experience for my first couple of years overall, but I think it's kind of well known that the big law world, meaning like major international law firms, are not the most friendly to um, women or people of color, particularly black women. There's just like a, a crazy high attrition rate um, in part because the work-life balance is just not ma manageable for a lot of people, especially if you have a family, like it's very customary for people to pull multiple all-nighters and stay at work until 3 a.m. on a regular basis. And I had my son actually a month before I took the bar exam. So I came in, oh. yeah, crazy. Uh, so I came into the profession like with a, a newborn. And so um, I, after my first couple of years, I decided to transition to in-house work, which was a lot more manageable for me as far as the work-life balance of it all. And it got, I got a, a lot more experience doing the transactional work, but even in those spaces, I still found myself gravitating towards the more like social justice, DEI sort of work. And so at my last firm, I became the chair of the diverse associates group. Um, and so I was in charge of putting on programming for the firm's events, in particular for, you know, the firm's um, associates of color. And then I joined the, the firm's like Black uh, Lawyers Network and was able to influence change in that way. So uh, one thing I was especially proud of was getting the firm to change all their lock screens to images of Black people during Black History Month, which apparently was like a huge deal for some people because the firm is just such an overwhelmingly white male space. So to even like have something so small, like this one secretary told me she was a Black woman, she said she cried when she saw it and she showed her like a pastor and she's like, I've been working here for 30 years and all my years, I never would have thought I'd see the day of something like this happening. So I realized that that work spoke to me a lot more than like the, the contract that I was working on. Yeah. And so even uh, once I transitioned to, to Comcast, I still hadn't let 
but that that still was a big part of what I wanted my mantra to be. And so here, so fast forward to the pandemic, um, I started thinking more and more about just like the idea of my value and like what I'm bringing and just feeling like, although the law and like my job is important and I, you know, enjoy it. I couldn't help but feeling like there's more than this, right? Like I could get on this like sort of corporate, um, I don't know, what, what's the word? Hamster wheel. Uh, hamster wheel. And like, maybe I'll work up the ranks and become the general counsel of Cobb Gas. But like, is that really like what I want? Am I doing work that, you know, gels with my spirit? Um, do I feel like I'm being valued? Do I feel like the, the folks here value what I'm bringing? And it got to a point where I was feeling that way less and less. And luckily, though, I had the idea of starting a an online company had come to me. At first, I was going to do a sort of a subscription-based box, and it would, be, it would be a lot more based on, like, physical materials and helping parents sit down with kids and do activities. And that was my sort of mindset. And then I pivoted to an online model um, and thinking about accessibility. So how can I get this in the hands of as many people as possible and how to make it as accessible as possible as far as um, cost, uh, you know, not only to um, the customer, but obviously to myself and having to, you know, have inventory and all these things. So I'm really excited that I did. Um, and so anywho, um, the idea for the company was really based on a couple of things. So one, that like feeling I had in college of like, uh, I was lied to, like, why did, why did I have to go to Yale to learn? like very basic facts about American history and what what would it look like if kids started learning these things a lot sooner um another touch point moment for me was after obviously after the murder of George Floyd um in this sort of moment that the country had where um I know both like at my at, at my job and just you know on the news there was all of these uh there was this big push for conversations around race that I think have been lacking for a while. Um, and so that was in part, that also was a part of my impetus. Like, okay, so there are more and more people who are interested um, in learning about these things. But then, you know, beyond the sort of, I don't want to call it a fad because I think people who are truly committed to anti-racism, it's not. It's something that, you know, maybe they became awakened to it uh, last spring. But, you know, if it's something they truly care about, it's still something that sits with them, especially in light of the recent events in the country. Um, but so I, I saw my sort of target audience as being both people who already get it and, and you know, who are in, in need of resources. So I remember working at Sankofa and trying to find resources to help teach um, either new texts or traditional texts, but always like basing it in this idea of black liberation and there's just like not a lot of resources out there incidentally um and so i know like there is a there, there's already a population of teachers who are doing this work who need resources but then there are you know also people who are just starting to come into this and obviously there's a ton of stuff out there on the internet uh but my thought was to sort of help filling those gaps by one bringing a lot of the stuff together under one roof but then also scaffolding it, uh, meaning having the concepts build on each other as opposed to having just a bunch of, you know, different lessons that are kind of disjointed. So I've been thinking a lot around, you know, what is it, what does an anti-racist curriculum look like? And so on the one hand, there's this idea of like, well, we need 
like immediate anti-bias or anti-racist intervention work now like there's some things that like people need to just stop doing right now um that we don't have time to teach you a whole history of the world and why all these things are, are bad we just need to like address it so people can feel safe and be yeah. like able to exist in a space and on the other side, there's a sort of more long-term work of people who are invested in these issues that, you know, if you don't have that foundation, if you don't know why things are set up the way they are, then, you know, just because you may seem nice on the surface, and I think that's where we are in this country, a lot of, there's a lot of politeness, and, and maybe we're kind of backing off from that, unfortunately, but um, it's more just like concealed racism, because we're not talking about it. Just talking about it is seen as impolite, as opposed to, you know, ignoring it which i think is a bigger issue but in any event um my thought was to start a company uh that would cater to kids and parents uh, or, or parents and teachers of kids from preschool to pre-college um and the more thought i've given it i'm thinking of now even expanding that even more to um prenatal to pre-college recognizing that there i mean racism starts to impact um kids lives before they're even born um, and then, so that program would be geared towards helping expecting parents and healthcare professionals um, with one, helping expecting, expecting parents, in particular women of color who we know have such crazy high um, maternal and infant mortality mm -hmm. rates, one, giving them the resources and the knowledge they need to be able to advocate for themselves. But on the flip side, also being able to like help these healthcare providers understand um, like where those points of tension are coming from and, and why um, these outcomes are are so disparate um, between groups of people. I know so many people don't think that they have a racist bone in their body, and they you know they just can't see it. Um, so I think the more that we raise awareness and the more programs whether it's you know like like your um your group and this podcast and i mean there's just so many different folks i see out here um you know either doing diversity work as, as volunteer work or like selling courses and so i thought to myself well you know i have a contribution to make as well um and so yeah i'll i'll stop there i've, I've said a lot <laughs> your background is so thank you so much for sharing all, all of that um <clears throat> And I think what you're doing is so important. I, I relate a lot because I was in medicine and then was like, it's fine. There's something when I started doing more meditation uh, type stuff. And so I, I relate to that like call to something different and then even going from that into doing uh, anti-racism stuff. But um, so what, huh, so many questions. Um, where do you, I want to ask about your content because you you find like you your 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 uh, YouTube video and for anyone who is not we're going to put the link to your YouTube video uh, in the show notes but you do this YouTube video on on the movie Soul and I just I love your approach because a your your like production is fabulous everything is just like nice and there's like points and it's well edited and I have, could learn a lot from that. Um, to say the least, like I have zero production, but, um, but you're, that's not even a, that's like the least important thing is your production, but it's also, they are well done. Um, Thank you. like picking these things out because I watched it and the amount of work that I've done in myself on anti-racism stuff. And I love the like 
spiritual aspect of it. So I really connected in that way. But like, you know, I watched that movie with my family and I loved every second of it. And I, I mean, I was literally like, this is maybe the best movie I've ever seen in my whole life. And we watched a special on it afterwards that one of the writers is black and it was a whole behind the scenes of Pixar with him. And, and then I watch your video and I'm like hit in the face in the best possible way. Just like, oh man, there's, there's so much in this world that's so easy to miss. And I guess, how do you pick your content? And because I, mean, I, I know, I don't know, if, I don't know if I've watched it yet, but you have one on uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, uh, and I'm forgetting the top, the one that you just put out this week, I watched also and also loved. Um, but of course the topic is, is the, the, the other one is Miles Morales, the comic book character. So. Oh yeah, yeah. And then you did another one just this week. Yes, it was, uh, so it was on Martin Luther King and White Privilege. Yes, yes exactly. Um, but by the way, one of my favorite Martin Luther King Jr. lines is like, the white moderate is the enemy. And most people don't know that he said that. And I'm like, that's us guys. Come on, we can do better. Um, but so how do you, how do you find the content? Because it resonates. And then I guess question two is how do you deal with the people that are like, nah, -uh. <laughs> not even uh, having it. So um, <clears throat> to answer your first question, I think for me, a lot of a lot of my choice and content, it's a mixture of a couple of things. So one is me saying to myself, well, what what content do I want to see? What what um, what can I contribute to the conversation? So for example, like the the, the MLK video I just put out, um, it's one of I think it's one of those speeches that, you know, so few people have ever seen. And it's one of those situations where I think his history has been just so sanitized and people, mm -hmm. you know, like conservatives love him, uh, like liberals love him. It's like, do you really love him? Because if you like knew everything, like kind of like you said with the line about the white moderate. Um, and so my hope was to, you know, just uncover, you know, something um, that you know, people may not have ever seen or really thought about. And I think that that goes for, a lot of my content so like for example with the movie soul and it's funny because i don't know if i had real if i had realized that this was such a, like a universally loved movie i probably would have uh, still made the video but i think i kind of naively published it like oh you know my my videos up until now like the first the most one of them got was like maybe 1200 views which is like huge for me so like oh wow like over a thousand views and so at this point this video is like like 20,000 views so I Ooh, you're going viral that's good <laughs> it, it, it's it's great it's amazing but I definitely did not realize the hornet's nest <laughs> I was walking into um and so for me that film was sort of a part of a series that I'm that I've started which is really around the idea of helping parents and teachers analyze kids content for racial bias and I think a point to bring up or an important point to note is that you know racism in a lot of people's minds is a very flat concept so it has to be like a minstrel show right in order for it to be racist or it has to be like blackface or something like very yeah. like in your face or to be a racist you have to be a member of the KKK and it's like no like there's more nuance to these things than that and like some things are very in your face and like you know we we can all you know recognize it and then some things are a little more subtle um and so I think for me watching the film like I just had a completely different 
lens on and I don't even think I went into it I, I wanted to like it honestly because I, I like like I said in the video like I am a huge fan of Jamie Foxx and Felicia Rashad and um and Angela Bassett and I, I mean like just looking at reading over the the cast and crew like it seems like they had a, a dream team of, of folks behind it um but yeah I had a, I came away with a completely different experience as everyone else um so that one was yeah, I didn't even realize how popular it was, but it's something that I know a lot of parents will be showing to their kids. And so I guess for me, I'm not, I'm not indicting. Well, I guess the video was kind of well, a little harsh. I'm not gonna lie. I, I, I have to like do that tone a little bit on, there's like a way to do social media to get like, watch it. so, you know, like I, 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 I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm glad you did every bit of it exactly as you did do it because it's not your job to make people feel better about themselves. It's your job to educate people, you know? And yeah, yeah. So that's, so that's been the thing I've been struggling with because my thought behind even starting the YouTube video or the YouTube channel rather was one, using the channel as a sort of marketing vehicle for um, my for the, for the paid content and just getting my brand out there. And I, I, I'm a, I, I love YouTube. I don't know. Like I, I watch YouTube more than I watch regular TV. And so I started a YouTube channel has been on my mind for a couple of years, even before I thought about using it in a way to like make money, just more mm -hmm. so for fun. But, um, so, so there, so there, so there's that aspect of it, but, um, dealing with, uh, the like, naysayers and the non-believers and the people who you know would never ever ever consider buying my product or like that part I was kind of hoping that that part of the internet wouldn't find my channel <laughs> which again is the you know kind of naive because so I, I took a course in how to do YouTube and sort of thinking about um, or learning about search engine optimization and and keywords and all of these things and so I tried to optimize the video obviously to get the maximum number of views but I'm like, oh man, the internet found me. Um. <laughs> they found me and I have like 120 followers on YouTube. You know, like I have like an extraordinarily small number, but they find me and they're scary. Like they're scary. It is. Yeah. I had one, I had one commenter tell me that people like me are the reason they wish slavery still exists. Like the number of comments, so I have like, there are probably about 400 comments right now under that video. And there's still probably, probably like hundreds more held in review. And so at first, like, um, it was just like overwhelming. Like I, you know, I don't even know how to. And so I tried, at first I tried to start to like respond to people because, you know, part of the work is trying to educate people, especially if folks seemed like earnest in their, um, in their discussion points and weren't just trying to like attack me. Um, and so I definitely did a lot of that, but like that could be a full-time job in and of itself. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, like that, that's been, definitely, it's been a challenge. It's definitely been a challenge, but I'm also really grateful because it's called, like my channel has grown. I've gained like, like a couple hundred subscribers uh, since I posted the video and my channel is like, it's gained like a crazy number of views. So it's, it's sort of bittersweet. Um, because I have gotten a lot, a lot, a lot of hate, um, but yeah. sort of comes to the territory. Well, you know what? I feel like there's, there's people who are like, I love being wrong because I'm like, Oh, there's no shame in it. You know, like, like I could dwell on the, 
but I, I you know, like thinking about the man who's been, who has identity was mistaken and he came and took his soul out. And then he was like, ah, and then he's like, and eat this, stop eating junk food. Like, how did I not see that? <laughs> I do trauma informed, like I'm a tapping practitioner, like, you know? And so I think it's, it's so, so, so important that you're helping people do this, like see these things because we, we, I, I was interviewing um, a woman named Melissa Shaw, who's a, a yoga therapist, an Indian woman talking about cultural appropriation. And I, I asked her, this is such a great response she gave. I said, what are like three things white people can look for, or not white people, anyone can look for to recognize cultural appropriation? And she said, that's not the right question to ask. The question is to ask, why did you find that person? What attracted you to that voice, that, that, that leader, that whoever to begin with? And so when people find themselves being like, I love this movie, it was amazing. Why did I think it was so amazing? And what resonated with me and my state of consciousness that made me not see those things? So Absolutely. And I think, and, and that's another, that's part of also film writing. And, and so I think a lot of folks, they, they missed in my critique was sort of thinking about, so they were, they were sort of focused on like, oh, like you're not understanding the in-universe like logic of it. And like, this is, he didn't mistake him. Like, this is why it happened. And, and 22 is not a white woman. She's just a soul and genderless and all of these things. It's like, listen, or, or, like, I get all of that. Like, I saw the film. I, I, I see what they were going for. But if you read this on another level, like, there's a whole other set of implications. And I think a lot of it goes to your question, like, you know, in asking, well, what part of the film or what part of the, this story com was most compelling to you? And from a lot of the comments I got, it seemed like most people were really drawn to the 22 character uh, played by Tina Fey. And so, like, that's, that's fine. But, like, what are the implications of that when this film was sort of billed as Pixar's first Black animated protagonist when you come yeah. away sympathizing more with the non-black character or you know I mean and especially the whole just the idea that he stole her life away or that like just the whole trade-off like I'm so glad the film did not end with him dying because that would have been like yeah <laughs> just like too much for my soul to bear right <laughs> but um and so, of course, a lot of the response from people is, you know, oh, it's not that serious, um, or you're nitpicking. I think what's hard for me or it has been people, and I have to, you know, obviously, like, grow some thicker skin if I want to be doing this work, um, but people questioning my intention, um, like, oh, you know, you, you're, you, you're the problem. And so I can recognize that as, like, okay, you just don't understand. Like, talking about racism isn't racist. But people who are saying, oh, you're just doing this for clicks or, um, you know, the nice thing is I've had some people who I engage with in a conversation and they say, oh, like, you really do care. Like, you know, this isn't just to be, um, I guess, like, inflammatory or whatever. Like, no, like, I, like, this is truly how I feel. Like, I'm not making any of this up. Like, uh, and, it's, and it's not just based on opinion. And, you know, it is obviously my opinion, but it's informed by, you know, tons of books and articles and experiences that I've had. So, yeah, and everything you yeah. said resonated as like cold, hard, like white gaze. You know what I mean? Like it was everything you said was dead on, in my opinion. And uh, not that I'm the one that gets to grant legitimacy to your work, but I, I, I from my perspective, there's n everything you said I learned from. So that. that. And I, and I have had plenty of people who were like, you know, it's, it's funny because different parts of my argument resonated with different people. Um, so some people were like, uh, you know, I didn't, 
I don't buy your whole point about, um, you know, the, the whole like dynamic between Tina Fey's character or his body being voiced by uh, the 22 character and whether or not, you know, we should be reading that character as white um, and all of that. But like the point you made about the way black women are portrayed is like, you know, spot on. Or people will say, you know, like that whole point you made about, you know, black women, like that's wrong. You know? <laughs> and it's funny because I think a lot of people have sort of projected a lot of their, um, their own obviously a lot of people brought a lot of themselves into the film yeah um and so obviously with like nearly four hundred thousand people gone who were here last year i think a lot more people are dealing with death which the film deals grapples with and also just like feeling kind of like life is a little meaningless and like you know trying to find something to hold on to and so i definitely I'm, I'm sorry to all the folks for whom like i ruined that for uh you know i think there are a lot of things in this world that we can take the good and bad from but for me i'm just like oh i don't want to let my son watch that like this doesn't portray this black male character in a very positive light i think you know in the end they you know it, it, they wrap it up with a bow because that's kind of what kids movies need to do um but you know the idea that a this teacher who has so much going for him like he had two job offers a job like a full-time job offer working for the school he's been working at and the uh, and the opportunity to work for his like idol in this band but yet he's like oh, you know what you deserve like yeah. you deserve you deserve this more than i do and like that message just like for me i'm like ah i can't do it but i've been trying to like and the more i read the comments the more i understand what people did get out of it but again it's just like the gulf of, 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 of not necessarily of information. Um, so I, I don't think you have to be uh, a race expert in order to like pick up on these things, but it does take a little bit of, of socialization and reading in order to start to see the stuff. And so it's been well, a, it's been a challenge. I think, I just think it's so important because movies like movies like, um, or shows like the Queen's Gambit and everything, like, I cried when her friend came back at the end. I cried. I was a sucker for it. Like, the magical Black woman character. I fell for it. And then I was, like, I knew that there was something off, so I, like, actually did a search for it and, like, read about it and, and found articles about it that, like, confirmed my, like, I, this, this is something not quite right. But it's so... The, the, the white supremacy culture is so ingrained in our culture that we... It's hard. You can't see it sometimes. One, not you. I don't want to use the word you. Uh, I can't see it. A lot of people. Lots of people can't see it because it's that way. Normal, you know. So it's it's so hard to see it when that's all you've ever seen. Exactly. Exactly. And then also just going back to the idea of children uh, who you know just don't have the life experience, don't have the knowledge base to be able to sort of understand and. Sorry, sort of, um, yeah, makes sense of, of the things they're seeing. Like, I remember as a kid watching you know, all the Disney movies that came out in the 90s. Uh, so, like, for example, Pocahontas. Like, I love Pocahontas. Like, it's, like, my favorites. I mean, at that point, I want to say, so it was, like, her and Princess Jasmine were the closest, like, we got to, like, having Black princesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, growing, growing up and, like, reading about this true story of Pocahontas and just, like, that movie to me like I can't see it the same I mean right. I still think you know for the animation it's beautiful and the in the music and all these things but 
like, wow, Disney, like, really? So, I mean, I think a part of it is, you know, recognizing that we all have these blindnesses, um, you know, even, and, and, and it, it doesn't make you a bad person. Like, I think a lot of the negative response I've gotten on the video is because people think that because I said this vi- this movie is racist or has racial elements um, and they like the movie, they are thinking, ergo, I'm calling them racist. And like, that's not the case. Like, plenty of us have, pl- plenty of people have liked racist things without, like, with, unwittingly. Um, and so, like, it's not a personal indictment. Like, we all, like, the idea is that, you know, when once you know better, then you can grow from it. And even with, in cases of film or text that are problematic, you know, they exist now, and we, can, and we can use them for dialogue, so there's still positivity that can come out of it, so that was, so that's another reason why, or that's another reason behind why I started doing this um, anti-racist media literacy series, um, unpacking different books and movies and characters and texts um, to start to, yeah, to start to look into some of these things that have been, like, accepted as, like, really great, but starting to problematize them, so, one of the first ones I did was on, and, and there ha- there's only been like three in the series so far, so bear with me. But um, an early, an early one I did was on um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which mm-hmm. I know is just like a time-honored, like beloved um, book for so many people. Um, in particular, a lot of a lot of like quote-unquote liberal white folks. Um, and so I remember reading the book in high school, and I think I probably enjoyed it. Um, it was one of the few books that even talked about issues of race. And so, you know, um, like that was, that was progress, in, you know, compared to all the other books that I had to read. Mm-hmm. And mind you, my school was majority black, and all the teachers were white, um, essentially. And so it's like, here, kids, we're going to, like, here, here's your chance. And then, you know, you get to the book, and you see, like, Tom Robinson and Calpurnia, these characters which sort of just, like, off to the background but you know even reading it as a black person like I sympathize with Scout and I think that Atticus is like awesome for you know trying to defend this black man and I was a huge fan of A Time to Kill and you know all of these like white savior Mm -hmm. movies and messages um and so again it wasn't until I got to college that I um had the the tools and the language to sort of start to unpack and criticize these things and so honestly I was expecting this level of backlash to the um that I got to soul to the To Kill a Mockingbird um video because like so many people and and the fight really happened on Facebook more so than in the comments on YouTube but there were just so many people who were just like no like I'm going to teach this book until the day I die and you will not you will not change my mind. You will not make me think that anything less than this book, um, Harper Lee is a saint. <laughs> like, all right, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think it, it's sort of a microcosm for like race relations. So like, if we won't give up a book, if we won't problematize a movie, right? Like these are sort of like in the grand scheme of things, relatively low stakes things, like you would think, but like, no, like white supremacy says, like, no, we will, we will, like, there, there will be no challenge to the things that we've deemed to be, like, good and, and pure, even if it's just a book, like, and so. You have to pry my cold, dead hands off of them. as Exactly. Like, like, I could have 10,000 people of color telling me that this is a problem, but because it resonates with me, that's more important than what they're saying. 
Um, And so I'm going to continue teaching the book. I don't care about the black kids in my class and how it makes them feel. I don't care that it's a a flat representation of race relations that, you know, I mean, the book was written literally 60 years ago. And yet, you know, it's still a primary text to help kids understand racism. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I I just, I think it's, I think it's interesting races and racism are not monolithic experiences. And so what's, what's real and resonates for one person who's black, maybe totally different experience from someone else and someone else and someone else and like holding space for all of it and allowing all of those lived experiences to be okay. And, and worthy, I think is what's hard can be very hard for people. I, I, I would agree with that, and I, but I also think that so often, um, in particular, like, white people who are trying to defend whatever it is that they think they need to defend will so often weaponize the voices of other people of color. Totally. Sort yeah. of, so, I, like, I have that happen a lot in my comments, um, so, like, you know, whether it's, like, I have a black friend thing, or, you know, this black person, or, I, or I've had people say, like, in their comments, say, hey, someone else black, like, someone, someone, someone black. <laughs> Tell, tell her that she's wrong. And I've definitely had people who are like, well, as a black person, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I've had people, other people say, you know, that like, you know, I'm a, as a black male music teacher, jazz musician, like in real life, uh, this, like your video resonated with me, like this is spot on. And so I think you're right. Like one, everyone's entitled to their opinion, right? Like, I, I don't think anti-racism work is about forcing people to buy into anything unwillingly that's not that's not gonna work um for me like the work i'm doing i'm really not necessarily focused on focusing on converting the non-believers but more so trying to like help people who are already kind of like getting towards that space but i also do want to leave space for people to say like this doesn't resonate with me i think um ibram x kendi's book um i've i've I've, uh what what is it how to be an Mm anti-racist i picked it up or in the spring, because I'm just like, it was just so popular, and like all like, and folks at my job were talking about it, and so I'm like, well, if I want to do this work, like I should probably be up on the latest in like the anti-racism world, and um, that book, like I, I had my own like set of critiques, but I thought overall, like it did a really good job of taking a really introspective look at the is- issues of racism. So I think the author does a good job of problematizing himself, like, hey, like. I was an ignorant black person. Like I got up and gave a whole speech like trashing black people. So, and like even problematizing the idea that like black people can't perpetuate racism. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like that really resonated with me because there have been many folks, whether they're grifters who are just trying to make a buck off of being contrarian, whether it's like a Fox News, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, cash grab or, you know, whatever it is like, and so there, there, there will always be people of color or women or, you know, whatever people who are part of the quote unquote marginalized group who will participate in the oppression of that group. And so for me, um, one of the things I learned in working at Sankofa, uh, my boss, she, I had a really tough like parent teacher um, conference one day and I thought like the, the father was like, he giving me some like unfair criticisms and mm-hmm. I basically like, I told him off in the, in the most professional way, but like, it was just like, I cut down each of his arguments point by point by point. And after the meeting, she like pulled me to the side and she's like, listen, like you don't weaponize your words against your own people. 
you don't, um, you know, recognizing like your, your power position and the fact that you have this knowledge and this person doesn't, like you don't use that to like, you know, be oppressive. So I try to even think about that when I'm responding to people who, you know, would be um, allies or people who are other people of color and like, always being like gracious and if I can't be gracious then not respond at all because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be a part of because I think a lot of the work whether any kind of liberation work it can become oppressive when people become so like dogmatic and you know and just narrowly focused in their view that they will shun people for not aligning with them 100 percent and, you know, miss out on a lot of opportunities to build really great coalitions and to have really great dialogues. Like some folks who've like taken me on in the comments will turn around and subscribe. And so it's been really eye-opening for me. And I don't know, um, just, it's, it's, a, it's a journey and it's fun, but it's also just like really draining, so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're, we're out of time and I, I want, like, I feel like I have six more whole hour long conversations that I want to have with you. So maybe we'll have a part two and a part three and a part four, but um, Brandy, thank you so, so, so much. Um, how can, so we'll put the, the website, it's the anti the academy.com. That's the website, yes. And we'll put your YouTube. Yes, and so you can go to the website and sign up. The YouTube channel um, is, Yes, please uh, put the link in the description for that. Um, please subscribe, check out the check out the videos. And so we're hoping to launch um, our sort of beta test for our paid content next month. And so I'm going to start advertising that on the channel for people to come and sign up for free so they can start to access the, the website. Awesome. Well, I looked on the website and it looks like there's already stuff on there for there's different level of programs to sign up can people already sign up or that's so so that's it's sort of right now it's sort of more of some of a landing page but that's that's going to be okay. what the, the that's going to be the content that's available but before I actually start taking on paid subscribers I, I really do want to get feedback from from folks and make sure that the content in the courses that we're offering are aligned with what people really need and so um yeah so okay. please look out Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Brandy, uh, for all the work that you do and for who you are and for, you know, saying the things that, that uh, need to be said. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you. And Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R, MD. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon. <laughs>